Hi there. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. With this is June 5th, 2019. I have a really special guest, Dr. Candace Hall. She's the author of two books, and she'll be coming out with a third sometime this year. She's an author, a speaker, and leading authority on integrative and functional medicine in Orange County, California. She also founded a company called Next Advanced Medicine, and she also has a product line. She's educated hundreds of people. She does this every month through free seminars. So we're going to bring her onto our show now. Hello, Candice. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi there, Denise. Thanks for having me. So our subject today is going to be on diabetes. Uh, okay. You've come, up, you've come up with some true solutions for reversing diabetes. So Correct. let's get right into the, into the subject matter itself. Uh, it'd probably be helpful to educate our listeners on exactly what integrative and functional medicine is to you. Sure. How do, sure. You, fit, how do you fit into it? Well, even functional medicine is a bit different than integrative medicine. Integrative medicine is diff- it's a bit more, um, let's say you went to a medical doctor and you wanted to, um, you, you were interested in functional medicine. An integrated approach is when they do a little bit of both. And, um, you know, they might do some medication. They might, uh, they might have different types of doctors there. Um, the functional medicine model is where you're really digging deep with testing to find the cause of disease. And I would say certain doctors dabble in both, but a functional medicine clinic is really usually testing a bit deeper. Not always, but sometimes. Um, and our clinic specifically, um, we specialize in... I don't want to say the word specialize as much as I say our focus. Our focus is uh, reversing diabetes, uh, cognitive decline, uh, specifically Alzheimer's, and then autoimmunity and thyroid. And in most functional medicine clinics, they will have um, an area that they focus on. Some doctors focus more on cancer treatment. Um, Some doctors are more working with specific disease processes like um, cardiovascular disease. So um, the goal is to dig deep with testing, find out the cause, why the body is losing function, and then put together a specific treatment plan that is specific to that individual's reasons for why they're sick. And then that's when we start seeing 
results that are truly unmatched. Um, I'm sure you've heard you've heard of Dr. Mark Hyman, right? Yes. Yes. So he's a very well-known functional medicine doctor, and um, he was invited not too long ago, a few years back, to bring functional medicine into the Cleveland Clinic, which was really groundbreaking. In order to get into his functional medicine program over at the Cleveland Clinic, the waiting list is over 3,000 patients deep, simply because the outcomes, in my opinion, are just unmatched. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I know that of all the different um functional and integrative approaches that you take, there's there's one specific disease that you hold uh more dear to your heart than any of the others. Um and that was through your own personal experience with it. Um mm-hmm. and that is isn't that pretty much what our subject is today? No, no, I'm not sure that um, that was communicated to you properly. I was never a diabetic. Um, okay. I had three. I had three autoimmune diseases. Oh my um, gosh! Initially, I had uh, I had what they thought was a bladder infection. Um, instead, it was interstitial cystitis. But back then, I was just it was relatively a new type of autoimmune disease, and I was misdiagnosed. They put me on antibiotics for three years for a bladder infection I never had. Oh, then um, antibiotics are pretty hard on the gut. The gut makes uh-huh. up a large percentage of your immune system. I was already autoimmune, and that pushed me much deeper into the disease process. I then got Hashimoto's, oh. and then years oh. later uh, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Oh, my gosh. But I will tell you, finding my way out of those autoimmune diseases, I am in full remission now. I don't have any lesions on my brain. I don't have, I don't have any of those things now. But I mm. found my way out through functional medicine. So Good for you. Working through MS, believe it or not, there's quite a few blood sugar issues with those patients. And so that's really how I got very schooled in understanding um, the importance of healthy blood sugar. Most doctors will tell you that an A1C, which is for those of your listeners that don't know what an A1C is, it is the three-month average of your blood sugar. It's the gold standard for measuring blood sugar. And once that A1C gets up into that 5.6, 5.7 range, uh, you've just really increased your risk factors for every chronic degenerative disease there is. So it's really oh. important that the blood sugars are normal. <clears throat> Now, this book that you've just, uh, well, actually, when did this come out? 218. So your book mm-hmm. came out last year, The True Diabetes mm-hmm. Solution. Correct. What motivated you to write it? Oh, my goodness, that's a loaded question. Um, I know. Lots of things motivated me to write it. Uh, one, I feel there's a tremendous amount of misinformation being given to diabetics that doesn't allow them to find their way out. In my experience, diabetics across the board have lost a tremendous amount of hope. They they see different doctors. They go on different diets. They try different medications. They try different exercise plans. They're reading everything they get their hands on, and they're being put on one medication after another. And it is a very frustrating disease, and they're trying to find their way out. And just diet alone... Um, one, they're taught, I mean, they're being told over and over again, diet, exercise, lose weight, diet, exercise, lose weight. If that were really working, then 
you know, all people had to do was diet, exercise, and lose weight, then we really wouldn't be having such an epidemic. But the disease is one that causes someone to lose weight, uh, I mean, to gain weight. Uh, Weight gain can start a decade before the diagnosis of diabetes, yet it is completely related to it. Um, Weight gain, they used to say weight gain was the cause. But most everybody knows somebody who weighs three or 400 pounds who's not a diabetic, right? That's true. Yeah, so we we know that weight gain is actually a symptom of the disease. It it can start a good decade before diagnosis. It affects some diabetics and not others. We see plenty of diabetics that are bone skinny, could not gain a pound if they wanted to, um, yet they are definitely diabetic. Certainly weight gain is not the cause of their problem. So, again, lots of misinformation about how they're getting the disease in the first place. Many people are very stunned to find out that diabetes can be brought on by an infection. uh, We're seeing research showing uh, about 30% of diabetics can get it from air pollution. We see it in patients who carry genetics that don't allow them to detoxify certain toxins properly. Uh, We see it in patients, um, let's say they worked uh, on a farm or raised by a farm or, or were around a lot of pesticides or worked in an area where they were around a lot of chemicals or let's say the patient worked nights. These are all different things that can contribute to diabetes and many more, yet they're just being told to diet, exercise, and lose weight. But they have a disease that causes them to gain weight, so it's very hard for them to lose weight. Most of them will use caloric restriction to lose weight, which inevitably, for most of these patients, ends up causing them to be more diabetic over time. Um, They're being told to exercise, and most of them to have, sometimes don't have the energy to have a conversation. Let's let's go exercise. So um, it's really, it's just not a workable solution. Even if they do those things and they diet and exercise, the the disease is is a progressive one and it's a degenerative one. So without really getting in and finding why the patient has become diabetic and and figure out what the treatment protocol that would be specific to that individual that would work, um, Mm -hmm. then generally they continue to just decline. So for those reasons and many more, I thought a book would be appropriate. Um, Very. It kind of goes through the different causes. We talk about just so much misinformation about diet. You know, they're they're often, you have lots of these patients eating oatmeal when we see that research shows it's like the worst food for a diabetic. They will eat a lot of sugar-free things like diet soda. Um, Diet soda makes them secrete large amounts of insulin that just make them more diabetic, not less. So there's just a tremendous amount of misinformation. What have you found to be the best nutritional program? Well, that's a really good question, too. Um, What we tell our patients is simply, number one, if there was a diet that was really working to reverse the disease, they would probably all be on it. Um, uh-huh. What we know is probably certain. We know we know that carbohydrates and sugar play a role in this disease. But again, plenty of people are eating more than others and not diabetic. Sure. So, um, really, what we know is that this problem is happening at a cellular level that's not allowing them to process or get glucose into the cell where it belongs. And okay. that that a diet like in a functional medicine model you're really looking at things that have an even bigger impact on blood sugar than simply just glucose and carbohydrates so um, for instance one of the things we know really impacts blood sugar are the foods 
that someone makes antibodies to. Uh, and to make that a little more simple, your immune system uh-huh. is supposed to uh, make antibodies to infections like viruses or bacteria, right? So right. if your body gets an infection, your immune system makes an antibody. You're not supposed to make antibodies to your food. But uh, many of these patients with chronic diseases do just that. Their immune system gets a bit confused. Often this starts with just gas or bloating or, or problems in the gut that may, they may not even have symptoms of, and they begin making antibodies to their food. Well, when a diabetic eats a food that they make an antibody to, they can raise blood sugars anywhere from three days to 12 weeks from one exposure to the food. So certainly identifying those foods through testing, that's what would determine a patient's diet. So we don't have two patients on the same diet to reverse the disease, you have to really customize the diet to the individual and really taking into large account the immune system of that individual. So diet is determined by testing. And the testing, is it through blood, urine? Well, um, if it's just diet you're talking about, that's generally done through blood. But when you're talking about testing in a functional medicine model, if we want to reverse diabetes, uh, the patient is generally pro- probably doing more testing than they've ever done in their life. We're looking at, you know, when we test the blood, most diabetics get what's called, uh, they typically get a Chem 4. That's four blood tests. It's a fasting blood sugar, an A1C, a lipid right. panel, and a liver enzyme. Uh, yeah. Years ago, we used to do something called a Chem 26, 26 different tests that would get us a much deeper look into a person's body. We'd get to see what's going on with their liver, their kidneys, their inflammatory markers, all kinds of neat stuff. Um, But then with the introduction of HMOs, we went from a Chem 26 uh, down to a Chem 22 and then a Chem 18, and eventually it came all the way down to a Chem 7. And now that's traditionally all that's done. And so the days of digging deep on a patient in a typical Western medical model are pretty much gone. Um, most diabetics don't even get a Chem 7, they get a Chem 4. And the only reason they're getting those four tests, the fasting blood sugar, the A1C, and the lipid panel, and the liver enzyme, is just to look and see, you know, if their blood sugar goes up or their lipids go up or the A1C goes up, that's the time to increase medication. So those are tests that are adequate if you're just trying to manage the disease with drugs. So (sighs) the goal, uh, or I should say the standard of care, um, in the medical model is to try and keep the patient in control, meaning an A1C yes. under 7. And uh-huh. um, if they go above 7, then the standard of care is to start more medication until you can get them back in control. And as the huh. disease progresses, that's how a patient knows they're getting worse. Um, they just need more medication, but they generally don't have any symptoms. Oh, gosh. So through an actual blood test, you'd be able to see what antibodies are being manufactured by a patient? Yeah. Yes, um, and to okay. what specific foods, which then allows okay. us to customize a diet specific to the patient and the things that are causing their blood sugars that to rise. That really does make a great deal of sense. Yes, <laughs> it and really it, does. it's really kind of, this is kind of what's cutting edge, and this is why we're, we've reversed literally hundreds of patients with diabetes. Some of them, diabetic 30, 35 years on insulin the whole time, people hear that and they think, well, that can't be possible, but we're doing it all day long. So the the disease oh. is very reversible. We just don't have a drug to do it. You know, and someone no. says it's a, diabetes it's be a is not process. reversible. It's not true. It's, it's yeah. going to be a process, and I assume it would, it'll take 
how long? Six months to a year, depending upon how compliant the patient is? Um, so our program for diabetes, it depends on how severe the patient is, but can it take anywhere from five and a half to seven and a half months? Um, the where it gets complicated is if the patient has something called biotoxin illness. Then it takes about eight months to treat, and these are patients that are have been exposed to mold or Lyme disease, or um, maybe they don't detoxify, or maybe they have a, a resistant staph infection. Those patients are a bit more difficult to treat. Okay. Interesting. So we kind of talked about how how your program differs from the conventional medicine program mm-hmm. and how you can re- reverse people that have diabetes. Um, what else would you like to add? I know that in your in your book, you talked about the blueprints for optimal health. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think if I was a lay person with the disease, I think if I was listening to me right now, one of the things that I think would be most important to say is that you want to get away from diet. You know, when we customize a diet for a patient, if that's all they do, we're not typically going to see that patient become a non-diabetic, and certainly that's the goal. Not all of our patients become non-diabetic, but that is the goal, and it's it's extremely achievable in most cases as long as we have a compliant patient. But what is typically not understood is that all this, all that's really wrong is happening at a cellular level. And the amount of glucose in the diet and how that glucose is processed at a cellular level is really where the disease sits. It's, it's how are things working at the cell. And that's why with so many people that we meet that just even after educating them can still be stuck on diet and diet is important you certainly can't run around in life eat whatever you want that's full of sugar and carbohydrates and think you're going to be healthy long term but um i think the the thing i would really want people to know is that there's a reason why the body is ill and if you can get a doctor that is really willing to test deeply and really understands at a cellular level and really understands the physiology of the body, how how the genetics play a different role in each individual, then it allows us to manipulate that body the way we want to um, and, and back into a healthy state. So I think that's what I would want people to know more than anything else. For a new patient coming to see you, how long mm-hmm. is the first visit? Well, in our office, we kind of changed the first visit. <laughs> so we used <laughs> to sit with the patient, and we used to kind of describe our unique clinical approach, and we used to kind of go through really what diabetes is, how it works, how the medications are affecting them, which kind of medications actually make the disease worse over time. We used to do all of that. Uh-huh. But now we just don't have the time. I would love right. to sit with each individual patient and explain all that. So now what we do is we have these live events where we describe that in a group setting. And oh, then that's from great. there, it is it allows us more time to treat patients, which is important because 
there's just too many sick people um, yes. running around, and we just we don't want people suffering, and we really try and help them as much as we can. Um, so now when a person comes in, the only way to even, if you were to call into our clinic and say, I want to come in, well, we don't have available appointments for months at a time. So what we do is we have these live events, and then we keep aside a certain amount of appointments for those events. We know how many people we can accept at the event, and then we know how many patients we can accept from that point, and then there's an interview process. So when someone comes in after a live event and they're pretty educated on functional medicine, how it is we go about reversing the disease of diabetes, then we will sit down with them, and for lack of a better way to describe it, we're essentially interviewing them to see if we would accept their case. So we really go through the ins and outs of the program, go over what would be required of them in order to be a patient here, and um, we 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 really know what to look for. Uh, we uh-huh. really want the patient to be successful. We just want to win, and we want the patient to win. And if we can sit down in, in front of a patient and ask the right questions, really see where their priorities on their health, what kind of things they're willing to change, um, get a good understanding of their health history, their environment, where they grew up, all of that, then we can really determine if we think they'd be a good fit for the program and if we would accept them into care. That process, so after the live event when they come in, that interview process generally takes us about 45 minutes to an hour. At that point, we determine if we're going to take the case, and we typically take about 50% of the patients we interview into care. Okay. I know that sounds like a lot, but, (laughs) you know, you don't want to put the wrong person on a program who's just not ready. So many diabetics are, uh, they kind of of feel good. Go ahead. True. And and one of the biggest um, roadblocks for most people is changing their habits. Yeah. 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 Changing how they do what it is they do and their willingness to change it. But, it's also discipline. You have to have an awful lot of discipline and commitment. It's true. And, Denise, where diabetes is concerned, there are a lot of diabetics out there who know they should not be eating poorly, but it is a hormonal disease that eventually ends up affecting the brain in such a way. I mean, your hormones regulate your moods, right? So when yes. you become insulin resistant, the brain runs on glucose. And so when it can't get it, yes. it creates cravings that these people can't control. Not all of them, but some of them, literally, they know they shouldn't be eating sugar. They know they shouldn't be eating certain types of carbohydrates. They know they know the things that raise their blood sugar, yet they have so much trouble staying away. It's almost like the person who has lung cancer and continues to smoke. They uh-huh. know they shouldn't, but they can't stop. And so part of, of really giving a patient a good treatment plan is identifying that and, and doing what you need to do immediately. Like within the first three days of working with our patients, within three days, most of the cravings are gone because we can balance it, an individual so quickly that their that brain is not overriding you know, their willpower because, Uh you know, with certain diabetics, there's no such thing as willpower. That disease really just hijacks the brain. And so that can be problematic. Um, I think the biggest hurdle for most of these patients is, number one, I hope this comes out right, Um, they can, (laughs) in my experience, you know, it takes a good decade to become a diabetic at least. Okay, Okay. so think of 
10 years of not taking care of your body. So most of the time, by, by the time someone has any chronic degenerative disease, whether that be heart disease, diabetes, cancer, anything like that, uh-huh. generally they've gone through a period of time where they may not have been taking the best care of their body to begin with. Okay, And then we're trying to take this disease process and turn it completely around in six months. So you bet we're going to need compliance. And so what happens with many diabetics, they call it the silent killer for a reason. They they feel fine. Most of them, but they go on the doctor, they didn't even know they were diabetic. They're kind of shocked when the doctor tells them. And within the next five minutes, they're getting their first prescription and being told to diet, exercise, and lose weight. Um, but the disease, although silent, in fact, they say that diabetes has the highest denial rate. Um, it kills 200 people a day. And not oh. to be insensitive, but it generally takes patients in a horrific way. They're either on dialysis, they're having amputations, they're going blind. They become mm. um, really, with lack of a better way to say it, a burden on their family because they, the family has to then take care of them. It's a very hard disease. Um, But none of that shows up until the end state of the disease. And many people will not actually turn and handle their diabetes until they they notice that their lifestyle is now being very affected by it. And by that time, Uh it's generally too late. Oh, it's too bad. Yeah. It's really, really sad. Well, I'm glad that we went through what, what your process is for even taking new patients. I think that was really important to know. Yes, yes, and I think it, it signifies how important it is that the person wants to get better. Uh-huh. <laughs> we, uh-huh. don't, we don't take patients that aren't really determined to get well. <laughs> no, you just don't have the time. Yeah, yeah, and it's so there I, are people who want to do that that are going to get great results. Uh-huh. They're ready, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're coming out with a third book about Alzheimer's disease. Yes. I guess you, the true you Alzheimer's found out. solution. Yes. Let's talk just a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, it's it's pretty much done. I, I think I, I've probably got another, uh, I would say if I put another six hours, seven hours, six to ten hours in it, I'm going to be finished. It's been a labor of love. Um, cognitive decline or Alzheimer's disease is is really exploding um we're seeing well just just in the last decade the disease has gone from the sixth leading cause of death to the third so for a disease to move that quickly in a decade is is very concerning um we have one of the highest rates of death due to alzheimer's and uh, compared to other countries we're we're number two Um, a person is is being diagnosed with alzheimer's in the u.s every 65 seconds and um, we have one of the highest deaths per million. So um, what we know now, uh, we know now that this disease actually begins 30 years before diagnosis. So one of the reasons that it is exploding is because um, they're catching it at the very end of the disease. By the time someone is being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, they are very, very deep into the disease. So early detection has been next to impossible uh, up until five years ago. Uh, five years ago, there was a a landmark study published in, I want to say it was science. I'm trying, no, it was aging. Um, aging is a journal um, where they put peer-reviewed articles, et cetera. So there was a landmark study published in aging where uh, doctors 
and scientists out of UCLA were able to reverse nine out of ten patients with Alzheimer's disease, which for your listeners who don't know, there's there's zero cures for Alzheimer's disease. There's not a single yes. pill that is stopping the disease, not a single drug. Mm-hmm. So up until five years ago, it was 100% fatal. So um, since then, 3,500 patients have gone through this UCLA protocol with a 90% success rate. So it is very exciting. Uh, we have been trained in that protocol. It's Bredesen's work, and it is the only thing working for these patients. You do have to catch it early. Um, one of the reasons we wrote the How book would you is know? simply... How would you know um, what, what early is? Well, so there are seven stages to Alzheimer's. The first two stages are called cognitive decline. The first stage of cognitive decline we call SCI or subclinical cognitive impairment. The signs then, early warning signs, um, brain fog. So let's say someone is used to their brain working at a certain level. Let's say they, at some point during the day, they just Mm -hmm. have like brain fog. They feel like they can't think straight or they just don't have the same ability to use their mind. They can't focus as well. They they start becoming a bit forgetful. They can get depression or anxiety. These are all early warning signs. Um, the second stage is where they just start becoming even more forgetful. They're, they're what's that word? You know, they're uh, they might be getting a little bit of what we call adult onset ADD, where they just can't get as much done in a day. They can get um, sidetracked easily and not complete cycles as easily. Um, and the key to second stage is that other people are beginning to notice. Other people are saying, how, "Well, you know, I how about if they how about if they keep re- asking you the same question?" Every yes. <laughs> after five minutes. Well, that's typically uh, a little deeper than stage two. Stage oh, three true. is officially Alzheimer's. Now we can see, you know, having to repeat things a lot or someone just forgets that they've told you something. Uh, they start having to keep a day planner. They have to start... Um, you know, organizing, they have trouble planning and organizing their day. They're like, you know, if they don't write it down, they're going to forget an appointment. They start forgetting the names of acquaintances. Like they remember the people they know well, but if they meet an acquaintance, they would often maybe forget their name or have to come up with memory cues. Um, You know, that term canary in a coal mine. You really, early detection with this disease is key. It's like if you had breast cancer. Catching that lump when it's really tiny is key. Well, for Alzheimer's, the key is early detection, and early detection, that canary in the coal mine is memory loss, short-term memory loss. And the problem we're running into, one of the main issues, is that um, people are blaming it on age uh, or they're blowing it off. I mean, if you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's at 70, that means the match was lit at 40. And what are you doing when you're 40? You're taking your kids to school. You're you're fixing lunches. Sure. You're getting them off to college. You're you're entertaining. You're working. You're paying bills. It's a very busy time of life. But this is when these early warning signs begin to appear, and that's when a person wants to take it seriously. So, um, I would say our live event on Alzheimer's is really kind of goes through the different stages in a. a, a a more succinct way, and certainly once the book is published, it's it's going to be, um, I think, a, a good starting point for people to start understanding. Uh, well, one of the things absolutely. I don't, one of the things I don't want to forget to mention. I know I talk a lot. I hope it's okay. <laughs> um, no, that's that's what my show's about. You're you're okay, we're learning from you. Yeah, I just can't. Once I get started, it's hard to stop. Um, no. So you know how, really with any problem, being able to locate 
the cause of a problem is very necessary in treating it correctly. It's like if you had an oil leak in your car. Well, if you don't know anything about cars and you're going to try and fix that thing yourself, it's going to be pretty hard, right? But if you know it's an oil leak, then it's much easier to to fix the car. Well, that's very true with the human body, and never did we learn this better in medicine than colon cancer. So colon cancer continues to be the second leading cause of death for people with cancer, and it is completely avoidable uh, with a colonoscopy, which at this point it's nearly mandated that everyone get a colonoscopy at an early age. And the reason is because if you get a colonoscopy and they find a polyp and they remove that polyp, well, then you get to dodge a disease called colon cancer. And um, most, I would tell you, it, it is. This is. I, I don't know this to be a fact as far as the percentage of people, but I would guesstimate that a good 95% of the public has absolutely no idea that in treatment for Alzheimer's, we have something very similar to the colonoscopy for colon cancer for early detection um, and avoiding the horrific consequences of Alzheimer's. Really? It's called a volumetric MRI. There are not a lot of centers across the country that are doing them. I would tell you most of the doctors that I talk to have not been educated on it. And, you know, that happens. They say it takes 10 to 20 years to get research into practice, and the stuff is only five years old. Um, But, again, this is the protocol out of UCLA. You can literally diagnose Alzheimer's immediately, immediately with a volumetric MRI. You can find out if your memory loss is, in fact, being caused by white matter degeneration of the brain or not by doing a volumetric MRI. And, you know, I think I think so many people are thinking, well, I'm just getting older. You know, it's uh-huh. one of the things that's, that in functional medicine we are really trying to get um, patients to understand. They have been They have been taught that as they age, they should somehow become forgetful. But you know, since Alzheimer's has exploded, we're, the science has gotten much better on the brain. And what we know is that if you are having any level of memory loss that you did not at one point have, there's a reason. And it, it could very likely be that the person is in the grips of a progressive degenerative brain disease 30 years before they're ever diagnosed with it. So volumetric MRI is really your ticket into finding out whether you have it or not. Um, so it sounds like UCLA has the machine. They do, but unfortunately, the waiting list, and I I don't know exactly how long it is. A colleague of mine told me the waiting list to get into UCLA's program for Alzheimer's is over three years. I don't, I don't, that was just hearsay, if you will. I don't know if that's um, completely accurate. I heard that from a colleague, but um, the volumetric, we've been, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. No, no. I was just saying it's really interesting. Um, we have been fortunate enough to create a relationship with an imaging center nearby that is invested in the technology. So um, if we suspect that a person has a cognitive decline, then we'll send them in for an MRI. Good. That's yeah, good to know I that think we have that in Orange County. We do. Uh, and I think it's also extremely important to point out, I cannot tell you how many patients we see and they say, well, my doctor did an MRI. Um, this is not that MRI. Um, I would tell you the majority of our patients 
that are over 60 with this disease come in with an MRI that says normal aging brain. And a typical, the typical MRI that is done is not a volumetric MRI. And so it is not looking at the volume of the white matter of the brain. It's just it doesn't have the ability to detect Alzheimer's um, at these early stages, which is why it's another reason why we're seeing the disease explode. People are just being diagnosed in late stages, and the MRI is just a really uh, inconclusive way of looking to see if this disease exists or not. The volumetric MRI is the key. Fascinating. I've learned a lot from you today. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh well, I sure haven't let you talk much. I apologize, Denise. No, I don't. I'm known okay. for that. Oh, good. Well, I, I did. I did. I'm, I'm I did here get to, to listen. listen to and, huh? I did get to listen. Uh, I think it was Lily sent me um, uh, one of your uh, interviews. And yeah, uh-huh. you didn't talk a lot in that one either. <laughs> no. No, I I ask you know inquisitive questions as we go along, and um, I understand an awful lot of you know the medical and scientific jargon. So sometimes I try to get it dumbed down for our listeners. Yeah, I do try and be cognizant of that. I, I apologize yeah. if I've used words that are confusing. No. No, you have. You have not. You've been a wonderful guest. Thank Is you. Is there anything else you would like to add? <sighs> I, I would just say that I feel, for me, I, I've lost my health. I know what it's like to suffer and wonder if I'll ever find my way out. Uh, I, I really feel like this is a calling for me. I have just so mm-hmm. much passion and love for what I do. There's really a very unique thing to have lost your health and gain it back and then give that gift to another. And so I just I really love this work and I'm I'm so proud to be a part of it when it is really you know, fifteen years ago when I was doing this work no one had ever heard of it. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Uh lots of cognitive decline but reversing diabetes and autoimmunity and et cetera. People just they're like, What's functional medicine? and, and you know, there's just quite a bit of um pushback uh, on reversing disease rather than management of disease. So uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I'm I'm very happy to be part of that movement. Yes, I I found the movement back in 2004, <laughs> long time ago. I searched it. Well, out. that that is a long time ago. Uh, that's uh-huh. that's that's yeah. early. Did you did you find it for a personal health problem? Yes, I'm a cancer survivor. Good for and, you. Um, Good for you. Yeah, I was diagnosed with two at the same time. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I used to say to myself, "Boy, did I ever hit the jackpot!" Talk about <laughs> yeah, t- t- talk about challenging. Oh my gosh, yeah. and having to work through functional, integrative, complementary Western medicine, Eastern medicine. I had a village. Yes, it sounds like you did. And back when there wasn't a lot of it, so good for you. That's it's great uh-huh. that you find your path. Uh, and same for me. It was, you know, it was much harder back then to yes. find your way out of disease than it is now. I think. Yes, yes. There's a lot more, a lot more available to everyone. But you know, yeah. granted, it, it costs money. It costs yeah. money, and it costs your time. It costs time. And somebody, somebody. Go ahead. I'm in, and I'm in full understanding of that. You know, there's a lot of people yeah. that can't afford 
to get the uh, the care that they need? Well, I think most of these centers really do quite a bit to make it very affordable for patients because they're aware of that. I mean, most of our, I shouldn't say most, many of our patients are over 65. They're on a fixed income. We generally can make it very affordable for a patient. But I, I also think it's our mindset. You know, patients generally have to get pretty sick before they want to actually you know, put money towards their health. Sure. I have met patients very, very ill who are, are they're going to die from their disease, no doubt, if they don't change something. And and they're willing to spend money on a car um, and, and some of the life necessities. <laughs> oh, I know. You can't drive a car if you don't have a body to do it in, you know. So sometimes <laughs> it is really perspective. You know, really I, I think it's, you take somebody at the end. I met a patient. This is a true story. I had a patient who um, she came in as a diabetic, and she really wanted to reverse her disease. But her husband was just like, she doesn't stick with anything. I don't think this is going to be a good program for her. And at the end of the day, I just didn't think she was a good fit. So I didn't accept her into care. Oh. She came back uh, seven years later. Um, she just really was not in a place mentally where she was willing to do what I thought was necessary for her to get well. Seven years later, she okay. comes back. She's on dialysis at that point, right? Oh. So she sits down with me and she says, I just wanted to tell you the main reason I chose not to get into your program. She just had a different viewpoint than I. I just, I basically said, I don't think this is a good time for you to do program. Her husband said, I agree. And she never really said much of anything. But at okay. this point, you know, years later, she's saying to me, the reason I chose not to get better or not, you know, not to move forward was because I wanted to buy, um, there was a condo they were looking at and she wanted to buy this condo. And at this point I I can't help her. She's in dialysis. I mean, I can help her with her diabetes, but (laughs) we're not going to get those kidneys back. And she said I would have spent five times the amount of money I needed to spend she, I, you know, she said, I would have spent $30,000 on the program if I had to, too. Thank goodness we don't have anywhere anything near that, right? But right. she said, uh, but now I don't have the choice. And I wish right. I could have videotaped her, you know, because once you lose your health, you'll do anything to gain it back. Um, yeah. But almost everything becomes a priority before our health unless we've lost it. And it's unfortunate that that's the way we look at it. I know. I had um, one of my doctors said to me, well, you know, your warranty's up when you get to be about, well, it starts about age 40. <laughs> and you really have to work, you really have to work on your health from that, from that point on. You really have to have a maintenance program. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. You're either going to spend, you're going to spend the money now. It's like your house. You're going to spend the money now to maintain it, or you're uh-huh. going to give up a lot of money to try and fix it once it's broke. If it can be fixed. That's right. That's right. <laughs> if and That's when true. it can be fixed. Well, you've been just a delight. Thank you, Denise. You really Thank have. you so much for having me on. I really enjoy it. I I appreciate it and I hope I was able to help someone today. I think I think that you you definitely have done that. So Good. listeners, we've been talking with Candace Hall. And if you want more information about where she's located, about her seminars, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners how they can do that. Uh, nextadvancedmedicine.com um, 
Advanced with a D, Next Advanced Medicine. That's our website, and you can go on there and see um, our live events. And I teach those personally. I think it's one of my most favorite parts of my job is educating the public so I can give them some hope. Great. Oh, well, and also thank I you so much. My, I could also give oh, yes. our phone number. It's uh, yes. Our phone number is 949-786-5050. Uh-huh. Okay. So. Great. Okay. And then um, I, I, yes, and I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of, of her book, The True Diabetes Solution, by Dr. Candace Hall and Dr. Wayne Greathouse. Yeah, and they can find that on our website as well. Okay, great. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. You too. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that wraps it up today. Please join us again next Wednesday. You know we'll have a great show for you. We always do. Until then, please be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? 